Thank you for tuning in to Lunar Cats. This podcast exists to create a safe space for us to share our stories. This first series focuses on three women who designed and operated businesses amidst a global pandemic. Join me in touching base with Amber Rose in Los Angeles, California. so interesting because uh um it well wait one I realized that like um we haven't had like a just like a casual flowing conversation like this in a very 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 long time yes years (laughs) but you know what it also kind of doesn't feel like that long at the same time like it's just nice like I remember I'm having this kind of surreal moment of like sitting on a porch talking to you and um it's just like so nice to have to talk with you so thank you for like coordinating this and doing all this stuff it's really a pleasure yeah I'm it it feels good to finally be be doing it I feel like we've been talking about this for months and yeah it's so crazy that we were both in Michigan at the same time I know for people listening Amber lives in LA and I'm in Germany so it's what like 11 almost 11 a.m for you uh yeah yeah no 10 30 yeah mm-hmm. sorry there's like I'm a helicopter flying above me because it is very much LA and there are helicopters everywhere so I'm sorry yes no that's okay it's it's funny that like you have to be quiet in Germany on Sunday but on the hour every hour the church bells ring so loud <laughs> my apartment oh my gosh I love it Christianity it's, <laughs> it's I built into to, everything I was um, just read because I was like, okay, I've known Amber since my sophomore year in college, and it was escaping me what street we lived on, and I literally I had to hop on Google Maps <laughs> to remember getting street. Yes, I I have totally done that. I was, I like, was oh God. Yeah, I was actually just telling, we used to go dumpster diving, and then she would bring the food into her class, and like, didn't you do that? You would like bring some yes. fruit, and they were like, their minds were blown that like, we yes. threw away perfectly good food. <laughs> yes, I, that's so funny. Because and that I, we retrieved it from a dumpster, and you could potentially eat it. <laughs> I remember letting a whole class eat pineapple that you gave me it was like two ripe pineapples and everyone was like oh thank you so much and and at the end of it I was like yeah they were from a dumpster and it was it was a class for my degree for community leadership so there Mm. were people working in the capacity of like working about food Mm. security or scarcity and Mm. um I think a lot of people were put off by it but ultimately well yeah they were like, you know, everyone wanted another piece before. Right. They knew. It was right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, because like, I, I mean, and I'm not sure if like that college's demographics, but I feel like a lot of people, at least if, if I'm honest, like a lot of people that I grew up around, um, didn't have food insecurity in the way that like so many people do. And, or they hit, I mean, they were, they hit it or like they were able, I don't know. But so when you're doing things like dumpster diving, because 
yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, it's just interesting, like, because people are like, oh, a dumpster, I'm too good for the dumpster. Like, ah, disgusting, I can't eat that. And then like. <laughs> so where, so why don't you tell everyone where you're a student at? You're a doctoral <laughs> student at UCLA? Yeah, yeah. So I have to remember that we're in a, we're in a podcast right now. And so I should talk <laughs> about these things. Um, yeah, so I am entering my fourth year of my doctoral program at the University of California, Los Angeles. Um, I'm about to take these really big, um, they're called comprehensive exams or qualifying exams. There's a different names for them, but you basically, for me, I have to like, um, so my area of focus is um, colonial and post-colonial North African literature that's written um, in French. And um, I'm focusing mostly on Al of like Algerian author or like North African authors. How long have you been in California now? How many years? Uh, I'm entering my fourth year, which is so weird because I grew up in Michigan. Like I feel, um, and maybe you feel similar. So that way I'm also not just rambling on and on because I feel like I'm talking a lot. Um, but like, so do you feel... Like you're very much from Michigan, but but then for me, like I started feeling like California is my home, and that was really strange for me because Michigan, I feel like, is my home. And but then when I went, there was a point, not the first few times, but like after a while, there was a I went back to Michigan and I was like, oh, I don't feel at home here anymore. It like feels different. And I started feeling like, like an alien kind of, mm. and, but it also still felt very familiar, but it felt different. I don't know. Do you feel like that in, like when you come back to Michigan that like, do you feel like culturally German in a way or like culture or like, I, it's gotta have like rub off on you in certain ways. It's, it's more, I think after this last trip home, I, I know that I don't want to stay in Germany forever. That mm. I very much want to come back to Michigan at some point. Mm. Um, but on that note, my motivation isn't like searching for a sense of home. It's more that I want to be closer to my friends and my longest friends. Mm. And my yeah. Mm. But it's, but being in the States, I can definitely feel the difference of convenience. And that's, for me, it's not even so much like German culture. It's just like European lifestyle. Mm. Where mm -hmm. It's just like more slowed. Everything is a little bit more slowed down. Um, and do you like that? I do. And yeah. I kind of, I live like kind of in the back country of Germany. Like I, you know, I'm like an hour or so from Frankfurt, but Mm. it's technically like the backwoods a little bit um mm. so it's not very big there's not a ton to do around where I live but I I love the quietness of it um are you on the, are you near the an army base yeah I'm near Ramstein uh air force base so it's mm. the largest uh NATO base in Europe whoa yeah so it's been it's been such a cool experience to be here and just see all the different types of military. So there's like Germans, Dutch, French, mm. UK. Uh, so there's like little branches of all these different militaries. So when I, 
so like my idea of what an army base is and then like my idea of you are like very different <laughs> or like, yes. I feel like you know, the army base has like a stereotype and so and and so it's fascinating to me that you like do you feel like your perception of the military is like different because you live on an army base yes a hundred percent I I feel like I'm very much like when I moved out here like I I think the biggest lesson I've learned is that there's a time and place for every kind of conversation Mm. um I've just met so many different people out here who work in different capacities medical they're lawyers like Mm. and just how they've chosen this type of lifestyle have a lot more respect for than just grouping the military as like this big evil entity yeah in a lot of ways what it you know the infrastructure in which it exists in isn't Mm -hmm. necessarily great and the bureaucracy of it all but um I just feel like I've met so many cool people that it kind of in a way trumps that part for me that Mm -hmm. try not to generalize as often even though it obviously it's hard really special for me to be able to connect with you and that's kind of how we reconnected when you started yeah Uh baby designs and I just remember getting the first set of earrings so it I just love that this whole thing started as an activism project um and now it's turned into a a business for you that you're like making money and it's just all of it is so cute and perfect (laughs) like I just love how it looks the whole vibe of it and oh thanks how so it's how, it's why fun. Was it an activism project like oh. what called you to start it I think um I've so I've always been an artist in some way um and I have different things I like dabble in but I um I started making earrings um because my ears are gauged and most earrings can't fit my ears Uh, Or they can't, like, work in my ears because they're too heavy or, like, they fall through the old gauge or, like, the stretched lobes. And so I was just – I saw pictures on the internet and I was like, ooh, I can make those. So I started doing that. Um, It's so weird to hear people call it, like, during the, the, like, George Floyd protest because I feel like it's so much more than that. But um, the very, like – beginning of when Black Lives Matter started getting into because it came, you know, like we've been, it's been an organization for a long before. And and now it's like the term Black Lives Matter is encompassing so much more now in the group or like than just this, the actual group. But if it's okay, like I'll just use that um, Mm -hmm. as a marker. But like when, when it got to the point where like, everyone was talking about it in some way, whether they supported it, denied it, or, you know, had, didn't understand it. You know, there's so many, it was interesting though, because the whole entire nation was like talking about one thing. Um, but I, I don't know, because I, I wanted, I just was making this art that felt really important and I wanted to share it with people. But I also, I, for some, reason like didn't want them to pay me money and I wanted or you know I I felt like 
there was places where the money could go that was more beneficial than me. Like, I don't know. I, it, it's weird because we live in this like capitalist structure where, where everything revolves around like gain. And so, but for some reason, I just, I like, didn't, I absolutely did not want the money. And, um, and I wanted to like do something good. I just wanted to do something good. Like I wasn't, I, because of COVID and because I, um, am around people that are like immunocompromised, um, and it's LA, it's like, I, I wasn't, I like felt, I wasn't contributing to the movement in a way that I felt worthy. And, um, like I wasn't in the, I wasn't like in the streets and I wasn't, um, I just, I wanted to contribute in some way and, um, and just the way that spoke to me. And I think that I have a really wise friend that said like, everyone brings their own, you know, we all bring, we could, we all have our part to play in like social movements and, um, and they're all important parts. And so that was my part. And I, it was really cool. I raised more money than I expected. Um, and I donated it to, I, and so like, uh, basically, um, I had some people, so I started making, I'm sorry, I have to explain things. It's so hard. I've never podcasted before. Forgive me. Uh, (laughs) Please edit some of my rambles out. But like, um, so basically I, people would make a donation to a charity that was focused on, um, racial injustice, or well, like racial justice, so fighting against, or like working against white supremacy, um, and and that could manifest. I think a lot of people donated to causes that were specifically related to, um, like to like police brutality and like black violence against like black bodies. But also, I think people do, um, donated to like indigenous cause. Like I, I didn't have like a I just didn't want them to donate to like Salvation Army or something. I wanted them to yeah. donate like a com- companies that were like, or like nonprofits or social movements or whatnot that were like doing real work. Um, and so I didn't really care where they donated. Um, I mean, I had them tell me where they were donating and then, but I also didn't ask them to tell me how much they donated. I just wanted them to make a donation that they were able to do. Um, because. I just don't I, like, you know, it's just wrong to, to like, say like, you need to give this much money because what they can't like, um, and I just want, I want to point out that that's so important. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to highlight you is that that approach to this type of situation mm-hmm. creates like inclusivity that it doesn't matter how much you give. It's that every little bit counts. And the fact mm-hmm. that people even want to contribute to dismantling white supremacy in such a unique way. I think it's, it's not only creative, but it can engage so many other people that might have felt that nothing that they could do would, would help the situation, you know? Yeah. And like everything, I like to view a lot of things in this, as an example, as like a, like, you're dropping it in a pond and there's a ripple effect. And so like, 
because that's how culture changes. I think a lot. I'm trying to like think a lot through like really big cultural change. So like we have these issues that some that like racial injustice and like racism in general. How do we actually like truly make change? And because it's such a vast, deep, complex issue. And it's not even rooted. And this is where I'm having like a crossover moment that always cracks me up where it's like my, my work as a PhD student and my jewelry design business are literally overlapping, but like, how do we, (laughs) it's so strange. Um, but like, how do we make real change? And so, because it's ingrained in our police, in, in like our justice systems, it's ingrained in our property laws. It's ingrained in our loans that we give people. It's ingrained in our television. It's ingrained in our mood, like all every cultural, whether it's like a cultural production or like a legal production or like a military production, like we have racism is, is like seeped into it, literally constructed around it. So like, how do we make change? How do we make the world a better place? Um, and whether like the way I looked at it was like, I would make art for people that would like make them you know, have something that they thought was beautiful and that they were aware, like that gives me so much happiness. And then also that in exchange, they also can contribute to something that's like maybe making the world a better place. And, and so it's like, not even just the money part. It's like that. So like that makes a change, but then also like them having to think, even like think about what my project is like that requires you know, you have to like then think about it in that way. And then, um, every time you wear the earrings, you're going to think about it. And then every, and then if somebody talks about your earrings then you might mention it to them and then maybe they'll think about it. And then I'm just, I have this like amazing vision of you in your apartment in LA with your garden (laughs) on your balcony. And I just, it's just so much like how I envisioned you when we met so long ago, but uh-huh. it's just like brighter, more refined, like more mm. knowledgeable, like stronger version of that. And I just love how it shines and how I don't yeah. know if when you started this as an activism project, if you saw it turning into a business, did that just naturally happen or was that kind of your plan all no, along? No, I can make it whatever I want. And so, Like I, I recently realized that I find so much more joy selling at physical markets than like trying to craft this like online, like online presence. And they're both important. Um, but it, it's really social media is like such a mind fuck sometimes. And like, it's so big and so massive and, um, and you're controlled also by like algorithms in a way of like what we can and cannot see, um, despite what the experts say. But like, I like, I realized over the summer I had so much more like satisfying moments when I was like connecting with people face to face and like able to talk to them about like, oh, these are the flowers that are in the hair that I make. And like, 
I made these earrings that were um, inspired by this sunflower that's unique or that's now extinct. But there was like a unique um, species of sunflower that was uh, native to Los Angeles. It was like literally called the Los Angeles sunflower. And in the early 19th or 20th century, it became extinct just through like development and probably over harvesting. Like they, things, it just got extinct. And so, but it's like no longer there. It's dead. It's forever gone. And so I made these earrings to kind of like raise awareness or just to like be a tribute to them, I guess. And it was just fun selling them at the market and like talking to people about like, look, I found these plants outside where you live. Why aren't I doing this at like a massive scale? And why don't you have like a million orders and a thousand million followers? Like there's this pressure to like be this type of a certain type of business. And um, you don't have to be, you can, I can be whatever I want. It's okay that I'm like, and if anyone else, if like anyone ever hears this (laughs) and they're trying to like, start a project whether it's a business or whether it's like a I don't know like a zine or a some sort of like social I don't know if you're starting anything like comparison really is the thief of joy and like if you um it's okay if like you're not booming or you're you're having a slow period or you're having like a it can be what you want it to be. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's cool what you're doing because it's, it's kind of almost this like little, it it can act as a framework and an example for someone else that, that aligns with, you know, your vision and your passion, whatever their art is, they could also, you know, create, create something this way that, not only involves other people, but, but seeks to provide information and knowledge, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And, um, I think it would be, if I wasn't like a full-time student, I would, I think that I would be like further along, um, whatever that means, <laughs> but like, I'm working for free. Like I, I cover my, um, costs and stuff but like I I'm not at a point and maybe one day I could be which would be really fun um but I'm not at a point where like I could pay someone hourly to do the work that I do because like it's um right now it's still very much like a passion project um and yeah so it's been a while constantly think about my values and, um, how, like, I want to, yeah, how to run business and also be conscious of things and ethical and like, cause we don't pay attention to our surroundings a lot. Like a lot of people don't look at the nature when they're outside. And so the, yeah, I don't know. And that's, that's always something that really makes me think about coming to, like, not only did I learn about dumpster diving from you, but I learned about couch <laughs> surfing and listening parties. And I, I just vividly remember you having some exchange students from like Japan <laughs> or some like, I'm not sure, but like you made yeah. dumplings and there was always like this amazing food to eat and 
I, I then later, you know, like I've couch surfed since I've lived in Europe and Mm -hmm. feel like you introduced me to all of these, uh, you know, unconventional choice, you know, quote unquote, unconventional choices like couch surfing, you know, people that that's dangerous and, you know, and so like, you always have to be safe and you always have to be prepared, but I wouldn't trade some mm-hmm. of the couch surfing I did for the world. And I'm really glad that I like pushed my comfort zone to that limit. And I think yeah. that you also push other people's comfort zone with the art that you create that mm-hmm. you do pay attention to detail. And I relate to that. Like I'm so, I, I always describe it as like painfully observant, but I've kind of learned to like switch my narrative around that, that, little little small moments in nature with people or with animals are so much more special than what I can see online or <laughs> connect right. like digitally so I've just always been more attuned to that and yeah like you're just sort of I just have very vivid memories of being around you a long time ago and I think mm-hmm. that that just speaks to how we've sort of reconnected ironically yeah. digitally this way so yeah like you're right yeah. it is a mind fuck all of this <laughs> like how do you define not only white supremacy but can you just give examples of of actions of working to dismantle it like if someone asked you that like maybe a, a future student or or someone that wanted to mm-hmm. buy some medical baby would define white supremacy as like something that exists as an ideology it's so it's an ideology ultimately that the white, I will say white, um, European descending like cultures are in like, so it ultimately stems from (laughs) white society always came out on top. They were blameless. They were doing the right thing. They were like, it's, it's all like the narratives are all positioned to reinforce the idea that like the white American way was the correct way. And that as we're learning or like not learning, but like, as we're thankfully sort of waking up to is that like, that's not the right way. Like that's one, not what really happened. And also, um, like by silencing, like black, brown, indigenous, like not just not white, Amer- like white middle class perspectives, um, or the white perspective in general. Like by, we we just need to have every voice at the table, and like not even just race. Like like we need this like intersectionality. So we of different identities, but also so like not, we don't need just like racial, uh, like more racial, like representation. We need like race. We need like gender sexuality. We need, we need class. We need like, there are so many different parts that like play into our idea. Um, I just, we live in this society that like suppresses all of those voices. Um, and so I'm sorry. I also am, 
I'm digressing. What was <laughs> so like white supremacy? No, no, that's you know. Um, and so that's. Do you think it? Do you think it kind of circles back around to, um, access to education and quality of education, and and not only that, but mm. just access to information. I guess sort like yes and no so like qual well so I guess we have to think about like what do you mean by quality of education because you can grow you can go to something that's like considered and I guess we just should like yes and no because like you could go to what's considered like a really good school but still learn like shitty (laughs) inaccurate things about history yeah and so um and so but so like, it's not even necessarily where we go to school, but it's like these production, like how the knowledge is produced. Mm-hmm. So like the, which is fascinating being in the university because like they produce a lot of that. They're like the university has historically like produced or solidified, like solidified certain narratives of people and like, like racism was a, a science, you know, like they, they literally for in the, since the beginning of time or well, not the beginning of time, but like at least, ugh, I mean, I, I can remember like maybe the 15th century, 16th century, like there are accounts of not necessarily race, but like, like this different, like race. Well, okay. So later in like the maybe 17th century, actually, um, like race became a science. So they would like literally measure people's bones and hair and like, and then, and so it was reinforced with science. And so, um, so like, that's, how do you even address, like, how do you even undo that shit? When you have, like, do you think, do you think that's why, like part of the reason why there's the term systematic racism because it's so ingrained at that kind of level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like that's systematic racism and this could be, God, I hope nobody, no academics are listening to this. I feel like someone who's in theory would be like pointing out all these holes, but I'm, I'm trying to just be like really genuine and not admitting like, I don't know everything, but, um, but like, because this is a real conversation and we're not being fake and, you know, um, there, uh, systematic racism, the term, I feel like really emerged from this idea that like the people that are like, racism doesn't exist because slavery is over. And it's like, no, <laughs> no. Um, it's just like, it's in our system. So it's like, it's in our education system, our criminal justice system, our hospital system, like our healthcare systems, like it's literally, it's our financial systems. And so, yeah, definitely. I had a professor at my undergrad university that we were designing a course on Islamophobia in the United States and for um, undergrad students. And she was like, Amber, you know, you can give people um this was also like right when trump got elected the first in uh so like 2016 i guess yeah 17 and 
she was like, you know, you can always, you can present people with statistics. You can present them with information and logic and all of these things that we think are sufficient proof or like a rational argument. And like people, if they don't want to believe something, they just won't. <laughs> like they, they, you can, they just, they won't. And sometimes it's actually better. She was saying that like one-on-one -on -one interactions with people that are different, like authentic, not planned or like not, uh, well, eh. authentic interactions with people are ultimately what will truly change your opinion um like over over facts because we're seeing like we live in this age where you can present facts and and people don't listen to them so that's like a whole another problem i feel like misinformation <laughs> but like um i i don't know i feel like no matter we should like why aren't why aren't you constantly looking at your, your behavior? I don't know. I feel, or like, I feel like for me, I'm always trying to like, I don't know. I'm always just trying to be like the better version of myself. Yes. Or, or like, I'm just, I wonder if, so like some theory, theory like um, philosophers would argue that like, we, um, this par a part of systematic racism is dehumanization is like a uh, root is like a foundation of, of these kind Cause like by D so like if we are humans, if we like see ourselves as human, um, we have like certain standards of what we think in relation to our own self is okay. And one thing that systematic that like racism justified through these like very inhumanizing ways and or like you and so people were certain groups of people through literature through like all sorts of different cultural things um were deemed to be like were just dehumanized and so when we um, which like colonialism, for example, cause that's just like what I can, my thing that I study. And colonialism is sort of this like convoluted term. And, um, I know for me a while ago, it was hard to like put that into context, but I think realizing the history of it and how it's repeated itself, um, oh. now in our you know, justice system and how different people are handled in certain situations. Uh, yeah. Me, like how I see it is it's the repercussions of what colonialism can do and how it's seeped into like every, every part of history. Yeah. Well, so like mm, there, yeah. And we could say like colonialism sort of morphed into imperialism and, because a lot of times we don't have like, because, you know, now we live in a world where, uh, I mean, there are areas where you could say are being colonized right now. Definitely. 100%. But um, 
there's like a whole big discussion of, about like colonialism, whether it's ended, whether it's not ended, like that the whole term like colonialism, post-colonialism and blah, blah, blah. That's like way off topic. But, um, yeah. but yeah, it's it's interesting to see like how they evolve. So like these different forms. Um, and the one thing that stays the same is that the the white supremacist part, like the. Yeah. Um, you have to be really clear. Like I'm just in, in communicating when you're like trying to describe some vision that you have, um, you have to learn how to be very clear in what you want. And that's something that is hard for me or has like historically been very hard for me to do. And so it's kind of a fun, like growing into myself moment too. You mean with a botanical baby? Yeah, just in general. Yeah, like the business in general um, and like working with other people. Uh, oh my gosh, so much self-growth. I feel like it's like a, a truly my baby in a way, but like it's also, uh, and I'm like raising it, <laughs> but um, just in myself. Yeah, so much self-growth. Ugh like having to deal with failure and having to deal with the vulnerability and having to deal with like sacrifice um, and having to deal with like, yeah, clearly communicating, knowing how to say no, um, being kind um, and generous and, and uh, yeah, so many, so many things, <laughs> so much self-growth in relation to the business it's a wild journey. It's like, it's crazy. <laughs> Do you hope to um, keep growing botanical babies even just as your project? Or do you, do yeah, you envision it being like a main source of income someday? I I think, yeah. So I would, I really am, am working towards that because I think I've realized that I am a person that wants to, I need like lots of different <laughs> stimulation. So I feel like I'm going to have different jobs in my life and, um, and I can't just do one thing. And so I think that botanical baby designs is definitely going to be present in my life for a long time. Um, and what I'm excited to see what it will turn into um, I'm really trying to integrate more, um, like plant based things into it. So everyone, I mean, everyone has their, their part to play, hopefully, you know, yeah. I like, I, I think everyone does. Sometimes I feel like I am getting a grasp on life. And then other times I feel like I know nothing. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but that's such a good attitude to have because the people that think they know everything are the ones that truly know nothing. Yes. And I think as I get older, it's becoming easier for me to recognize when I'm wrong. Mm. And just mm -hmm. more accepting of that, that it like, it doesn't have to hold all the skill and shame as long as like, I can respect myself enough to say that I'm wrong. Yeah. It all comes back mm -hmm. to respect for me. Um, mm. Respect for others also.
listening and changing your behavior is the most important. And so I'm trying to get, I'm trying always to like say sorry, recognize when I'm wrong, but then also like listen and like be better in the future and change my behavior. And because if we keep like, it's almost like the thoughts and prayers kind of mentality of like, you can just say every time something terrible happens, we can say like thoughts and prayers, or we can say like, okay, let's make some like social changes, you know? (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to Lunar Cat's second episode for the series Women. If you're interested in Amber's creations, check out her Instagram at botanicalbaby underscore underscore designs and order on her website at www.botanicalbabydesigns.com. Thank you, Amber, for carving a path of creativity with nature as your main inspiration. Thank you for using something beautiful to spread awareness around racial injustice. Thanks for shining so bright. My name is Mariah Kennedy, born and raised in Lansing, Michigan, but for the last five years, I've been living and working overseas in Germany. I'm aiming to share stories from around the globe. If you have an idea for a series or would like to share your story, please contact me at lunarcats with a Z dot safe dot space gmail.com again my email is lunarcats with a z dot safe dot space at gmail.com or for podcast releases visit my instagram at lunarcats with a z l-u-n-a-r-c-a-t-z